From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Candace Watt-Smith. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are talking about juries, and our guest is Sonali Chakravarti, who is a professor of government at Wesleyan University and author of the book Radical Enfranchisement in the Jury Room and Public Life. You know, we talk a lot on this show about voting as a civic duty, and, uh, you know, Sonali argues in her book and in this interview that jury service is right up there with it as something that should be taken seriously and and really thought about as an integral part of our democratic lives. Well, that's right. But it's, it's not, I mean, she is not talking about uh, jury service as a duty merely. She's talking about it as a form of democratic empowerment. This is um, a role that citizens have that is dramatically democratic insofar as we are giving 12 citizens the responsibility and the right to determine, you know, what is going to be the consequence of a civil or criminal trial. And um, and she is absolutely right to say that we don't uh, say enough about that as a as part of our, you know, birthright as, as, as citizens of a democracy to have that power and to be able to, you know, express our will in that way. And, in, 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 you know, we don't do it nearly as often, but when we do it, it is far more substantive and far more important than, uh, than voting. So I really appreciate that really also just kind of the articulation of serving on a jury and being able to serve on the jury as maybe the kind of other side of the fran- the franchise. And I guess, you know, like she, she helped me to connect a dot that I think I had both of the dots there, but hadn't fully connected them insofar as, I mean, in most places, the way that you become a juror or be, get into the jury pool is being a, a registered voter. And so, I mean, that's that's more of a technicality. And the fact of the matter is that it doesn't have to be that way, right? That there are other ways to find out who are eligible jurors. But, um, and it is often the case that it is linked with voting. And I was recall when, when we were, when we were uh, reading this, I was recalling when E.J. Dion and Miles Rappaport were on the, uh, the show, they recounted that uh, during the civil rights era, Far from seeing jury duty as a uh, a pain, something that they wanted desperately to get out of, the African Americans in the South demanded the the right to uh, serve on juries, and you know the reasons for that are obvious. But you know it is if it you know if it's part of enfranchisement. For citizens, then it is absolutely imperative that everyone have that uh, have that opportunity, right? And then that leads to a whole variety of questions about the fact that so few jur- uh, trials go to juries, 
uh, the fact that it's, I mean, literally like 3%, 2.5%. It's, it's virtually none. And then you talk about the, uh, the process by which juries are selected, not just into the pool, but then from there on out. There's all kinds of ways in which these, these questions of control come up. And then also, how do they, you know, how do they uh, advance or compromise the democratic dimension of, of jury duty? I think the other thing that is important to consider is this idea that, okay, we don't... <laughs> We don't want to, people on average do not want to serve on juries, but there also is a suspicion that the people on the jury are not capable of doing their job really well either. And what I think that kind of tells us is about the health of democracy too. So, right. So one, the kind of uh, the, the extent to which people want to constrain access to the jury is a signal of the health of democracy. And I think also the extent to which we believe our fellow citizens are capable of making excellent decisions in this space, right? Do we trust them? Do we think they're capable of doing that work in a non-biased way? I think also tells us a little bit about where we are um, in our kind of civic relationship to one another, have either of you ever served on a jury? Um, I know I've never even been called to, for the initial round. Yeah, I have. I have. I was actually foreman, and and it was I, I it was an incredible responsibility. I was worried, scared to death that we were not going to make the right decision, that we were going to make the wrong decision. And either way, right, either way, this is terrible. This would have been terrible if it, you know, if the person was guilty and we found them innocent, that would have been terrible. And far worse, if they were innocent, we found them guilty. And it was uh, challenging because, you know, it was bringing together people who were vastly different in terms of their background and, and, um, education and everything, you know, profession, everything else. But, you know, I feel like we, we did right. It was, we, we did the right thing. And the first thing when I got out was I asked the, 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 you know, the person who was our, the officer who was our kind of a liaison. I said, did he have any priors? And he said, no. I'm like, okay, good. (laughs) Anyway, so, so yeah, we found him innocent. So, Chris, do you like feel like that process made you feel more confident about that system or less confident? I, you know, I, this is not the answer you want, but I'd say both. I feel like there is that lawyers are very good at manipulating juries. And they do it in a variety of ways, subtle and not so subtle. That manipulation extends to the, the, the construction of a jury. You know, it's, it's their job to win the case. And so it's their job to work the jury in a way that is not, that is built more on rhetoric than it is on a uh, cold and deliberate accounting of the facts. 
I guess but my- on the other hand, I would also say that we all took the responsibility of being in that room very seriously. And we were not about, and I, you know, and I said, we're not leaving until everyone um, is able to go home and sleep well tonight. And, and so we did, we stayed and we just worked it through. And, and that's, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, I think as long as you, as long as you have that, and that's the job I think of the judge, right? And he was very, in this case, was very deliberate about his mandates to us and, and what we should be looking for and how we should be examining the law. And so I think, you know, in, in most case, as is true in most cases, the person who is, has ultimate authority is going to be the one who sets the tone. And if the tone is set correctly, then it's likely to be a good experience. Thank you for, for sharing that, Chris. It's interesting to think about your specific example in the context of the broader themes that Sonali draws in her book and in the interview. So without any further ado, let's get to it. Here's the interview. Sonali Chakravarti, welcome to Democracy Works. Thanks for joining us today. I'm happy to be here. So, so much to talk about uh, in your work with on juries and the notion of radical enfranchisement that you write about in your most recent book. But I, I'd like to start maybe with a, a little bit of history about like how and why we have juries in America in the first place. As I was reading your book, I was thinking about some of the ways that you know, the, the idea of, of a jury, it kind of runs counter to what we hear about the founders and their skepticism of direct democracy and giving too much power to people who are not elites, and also to the idea of liberalism, that, you know, we should vest authority in institutions and experts. So juries are kind of the opposite of both of those things. So I wonder if you could just talk a bit about yeah how and, and why they came to being in, in this country. Yeah, uh, thank you for that question, because I think you're right that, that juries do push against um, so many of the other things that we think protect democracy. And I think that's another reason why supporters of juries often come from across the political spectrum. Uh, you, sometimes you get strange bedfellows uh, when, you, when you write about juries. But to your question about how juries started, uh, one history traces the jury back to the uh, back to the Magna Carta, and in that document, uh, there was provision that um, uh, that uh, anybody who was tried before the king had to be tried by a jury of peers. Um, and at that point, uh, what peers meant were uh, elites and barons, uh, you know, people who we wouldn't think of as ordinary people. But it's still significant because there was this understanding, even in that document, that um, the king can't have total control of the procedure, that for, for a procedure to, to be legitimate, to, to be following rules other than you know brute force, there has to be some type of check against uh, arbitrary power. And having um, a jury is a very important way to do that. It's a way to tie the hands of the sovereign so that the rule of law can be uh, paramount. 
And the founders also understood this. And uh, juries were really important in the colonial period when those in the colonies didn't think that the, the law of England should be applied in the same way or wasn't relevant. There is the you know famous libel trial of John Paul Zenger, where a jury you know found the defendant not guilty for, um, for libel because what this newspaper editor had published was true. And uh, they didn't feel that the defendant should be published for libel if uh, the information was true. And they went against what the stated law was. And that was an important case that showed the independence of the jury, how important it is for a local community to decide not only you know, is this a law and is there evidence uh, showing that someone broke the law, but do we want to punish this person in um, at this moment? And um, and that idea of local control over punishment, that kind of final stage when the before the state can, uh, can be, become involved in taking away one's liberties, um, was something that was very important for the founders to continue. And so they built the right to jury trial into the Sixth and Seventh Amendments of the Constitution for criminal trials and for civil trials. And um, and there was this sense that uh, that as, even though we're breaking away from a monarchy, we still think that despotic authoritarian power could be a problem. It could be a problem with um, the democratically elected uh, leaders. It could be a problem with prosecutors. And um, and the jury is one way to, uh, to stop that um, from happening. And I think that uh, sets us up nicely for your concept of radical enfranchisement, uh, not just that juries can come together and, and address the question at hand, a la 12 Angry Men or any other conception of juries in, in popular media. You argue that juries can actually perhaps expand the bounds of, of democracy or, you know, build even more on this idea of the, the power that we have as democratic citizens. Right. When when you hear the term enfranchisement, people think automatically of voting and like that's the pinnacle of being a citizen. And if you're enfranchised, you you, you know your, you, about your right to vote and you use it. And I think that's true. It's it's a very important one and is the key to democratic representation. But the other half of enfranchisement is the right to serve on a jury. And I write about that because I think it's the most demanding obligation we have. And if you think about uh, when you're a voter, you have to think about what your preferences are and express them. Like being a juror means you're not just thinking about your own preferences. You're thinking you have, you're making a decision that affects someone else's life and you have to do it through uh, a discussion and persuasion uh, and deliberation with other people. So just what it means to be a juror requires so much more in terms of civic knowledge, in terms of knowledge about, you know, the human psyche, in terms of um, uh, knowledge about how to engage with other people, how to communicate. And so it's just a, a really robust understanding of what it means to be a citizen and kind of the flip side of that is that when you serve as a juror, um, people you know see that like if the state trusts me to make this decision, like I, I like I'm you must be you know like you know someone worthy of this. And uh, so it has this ennobling effect, I think, of um, of being being told that yeah, we have lots of lawyers you know who who know the law, but it's you you know you twelve people we trust to make a decision about someone else's fate. 
and uh, and I think the the combination of the kind of the intensity of the task and the feeling that the jurors have leads to a different relationship to the law um, after uh, jury service, and that's where the kind of the radical uh, part of radical enfranchisement enfranchisement comes out. In that, once you're a juror, you see that like actually like democracy needs me and to to participate in it to work. You know, as I was reading your book, I couldn't help but think about Desmond Mead from the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. We've had him on on the the show before. And, you know, he's really worked to to get you know voting rights and and civil rights restored for formerly incarcerated people. And that's you know one group in in some places that you know formerly incarcerated felons. It's one group in some places that does not have the right to serve on a jury. And so we, we also know about, you know, in the, in the Jim Crow era, um, African-Americans were excluded in a, in a variety of ways from serving on juries. And so we've, we've had so much attention and so much progress about voting rights and, you know, that side of enfranchisement that you were talking about before. I, I wonder where we are comparatively with the right to serve on a jury. Are are we at the point where juries really are truly representative of our democracy as it stands today? Yeah, and the answer to that is no. Juries fall woefully short of the representative ideals um, uh, that we would like to see in juries. And the move to allow formerly incarcerated people to serve uh, as jurors, I think, is a really good one. And I think, um, it, and in some ways, is a kind of a limit case because, like, if we can work on that and think about what that means, hopefully many other people will also be allowed to serve. But what we know is that people of color don't serve on juries at the same rate. And that, that especially in cases where there are black defendants, and we know that across the country there are many trials, that there is not a single black juror for that for that case, and uh, and that um, and that this is a huge problem. That like going back to the idea that what we want from jurors are knowledge of the community in which the crime took place and knowledge of how the law is enforced. And so if you, if we have um, such racial disparities on juries, can we really say that it is a that it is a fair trial? And so I think there are a couple of things we can do to improve um, racial representation on, um, on juries. One is to get better lists that we draw uh, jury names from. So right now, um, many states use what are called you know, motor voter lists. So they look at uh, lists of people who have driver's licenses and lists of people who register to vote. And you could be a both list, you know, and then they you know, pull randomly from that from that collection of names. And so that is good at pe- picking up certain people, um, but it is not good at picking uh, at um, picking up possible jurors from people who might change addresses a lot, who don't uh, uh, who don't have a driver's license, who might not have registered to vote, but are, but are citizens. You know, to be a juror, you need to be 18 years old and a, and um, and a citizen, and you also need to be comfortable with English as the language of the courtroom. So one uh, you know possibility is for states to follow what Massachusetts does, which it has residency lists that are updated yearly about like who actually 
actually lives in this town at the, uh, this year. Um, so that would be better because it picks up renters and, and, and other people. Um, another thing to do is to use um, a kind of tax records and to see who paid taxes in this area um, in the past year um, and use that as the list. So that's one way to get more um, uh, more representation into the, the larger pool. Um, and, the, and the last thing I'll say about this is that I think another way to uh, to create rich, more racially diverse juries is similar to what we saw in the Chauvin trial in uh, 2021. Um, so I've written um, about how the judge set up a culture of uh, trying to create an inclusive jury in that in that trial. And you know it's a very unusual case. It was you know watched around the world, right? Um, it, it, because it was about the death of George George Floyd and the national and international movement for Black Lives Matter that it set into place. So the judge knew that like we need a racially diverse jury for this. So that an all white jury is not going to be seen as a legitimate jury in this case. And I think uh, bo- attorneys on both sides also knew that like we you know it doesn't make sense to pick off all the the jurors of color. And and so a couple of good things happened uh, during the one year selection for that case. One was it, they got a lot of um, diverse jurors in the larger pool. Um, you know other scholars have commented on like how many young people were, you know, showed up to jury duty that day. And so, so they kind of got a good list or they, they also, that, you know, the way the um, Minnesota state court system works was able to draw a good pool of jurors, good meaning, you know, uh, diverse, uh, you know, in a couple of different um, axes. Then the second thing that I think the judge did during that, that trial that was good was he really encouraged um, all jurors to speak very candidly about their reactions to the death of George Floyd and what happened in its aftermath. And so you had jurors saying, like, you know, like, I can't believe, you know, another person died this way, or this, you know, uh, this is connected to different types of racism that we have in in our society. So really um, uh, candid, open statements about about what happened uh, at that time. Uh, And, you know, the the judge wanted to make sure that these jurors could also be fair to the defendant, Derek Chauvin. So he asked several questions about that and about whether they could, whether the juror could follow the the procedure of the trial, including the defendant's right to remain silent, the, the fact that the burden of uh, proof was on the prosecution. So you know, um, the, the judge didn't say that, like, you know, anybody you know, who, regardless of how they feel about Chauvin, can get, get on to this trial. But what I really appreciated was the judge held both things, um, you know, in a delicate balance. They could have very strong feelings about George Floyd's death, but you could also be willing to follow the procedures of the court and you understand why Derek Chauvin deserves a fair trial. If I think back to my own family and, you know, people that I I know uh, who have been called to serve on a jury their attitude is almost always, well, what can I do to get out of this, right? How, what excuse can I come up with? What can I say? What, you know, whether it's like before you even get to the courthouse or during the process to like try to not do this under any circumstances. Does, the, does that match up with broader public opinion about how people feel on serving on juries? I always feel like my job is to get people excited to serve on juries. And, you know, that's how I, I, you know, determine whether I've been successful with my students is like, well, they say yes to jury duty, but no, that is the the feeling. And, you know, there is that kind of the the old kind of chestnut is like, I'd never want to be judged by 12 people who were not smart enough to get out of jury duty, you know? So in that there's both what you were saying, which is like, it's such a drag, like who really wants to have to go and sit there for that many days. But also this, uh, 
cynicism about fellow citizens, right? The, the, the sense of like, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't trust my neighbors really with any important decisions or like I'm smarter than everybody else. And, um, and so I, you know, one reason I study juries is because they're a microcosm of democracy. And it's like the, the problems we have with juries are the problems we have with democratic life. And if you think, you know, your fellow citizens are too stupid to, to judge your case, then like we, that, that is a crisis for democracy. Like we should, we, um, we should be addressing that um, more broadly. But as I said, that that um, scholars who study done questionnaires with jurors after they've uh, they've served find the opposite that that, that they actually are you know, glad that they did it. Um, they were you know impressed by many of their fellow jurors, you know, and uh, and you know, and pleasantly surprised by um, how seriously people took it. So, um, so I feel like that should also be part of the education around it. That it's not not just the kind of nuts and bolts of what it means to be a juror, but actually what people get out of it that is uh, that is unexpected and. And, uh, and I think this could also have, you know, uh, consequences for how many people um, take their cases to jury. You know, right now, uh, just a tiny fraction of cases uh, go to jury. The rest are settled by, by plea bargaining in the, um, in the criminal system and, you know, other means in the civil system. And, uh, and I think part of that is people are like, I, you know, I don't trust, uh, you know, juries or you never know what's going to happen in a jury or the jurors aren't going to be like me. Um, so I think if more people wanted to serve on juries, we actually might get more defendants choosing to go that route. I think another thing to do to, to facilitate that would be to make trials shorter. You know, I know some uh, some courts are trying to have like three day trials or set time limits because that, that both keeps down costs, but also you know makes it more um, appealing for jurors um, who have to pay attention for for that amount of time. So I think changing the way we think about juries has an outsized uh, impact on the legal system more broadly. Yeah, and I think that in a way brings us back around to the idea of jury nullification that you mentioned um, earlier. And I, I know you wrote last year about how that might be used to protect uh, reproductive rights in kind of the post-Roe era. So can you set that up for us and, and, and explain, you know, maybe using this issue to explain how nullification works and, and how it ties to the notion of a radical enfranchisement? Yeah, so when jury nullification is a power that juries have to to give a not guilty verdict um, without being overturned by the judge who say, might say, oh, but I thought the evidence was compelling, juries always have a right to say not guilty. And this is the kind of core of their independence, right? If, if, if we thought that other people would say that jury made a mistake, it should be guilty, then that would really gut the whole system of the, of the power of the jury to act as a check on the inappropriate appropriate um, enforcement of punishment. And juries can decide not guilty, either because the evidence is not there, and that's kind of a straightforward way to do it, or they can decide that the law itself is unjust, or that it's being applied in an unjust way here, or that the prosecution was corrupt somehow and how it presented the, the evidence. So these are all, you know, legitimate reasons for a, um, a jury to return a not guilty verdict. And um, and we call it a nullification when we think that it is one of the reasons that is apart from the evidence. Uh, so it was something to do with the law itself or its, or its application. And uh, juries have always had this power, um, and it's and it's uh, you know recognized by by the Supreme Court. 
though the the court in this country has said that the jurors don't need to be informed of this uh, of their power that in some ways it, it is uh, kind of intrinsic and organic to what they're doing if they don't feel like uh, rendering a guilty, guilty verdict they're allowed to do that but no one needs to tell them that there, there's this thing called jury nullification and that it has this history you know some of the t- times in American history where we've seen nullification for example you know during the Vietnam War where you know where um, uh, you know, the defendants might have been protesting the war and, and destroyed property, you know, in the context of that, are times when uh, America is really divided about uh, about the law, or there's, you know, multiple legal regimes coexisting in one in one nation. And, um, and that's, uh, it, it, the, during the time of the Fugitive Slave Act was another uh, time where we did have a national law saying that if you help a slave escape, you could be, uh, you know, punished with a fine and prison time. Uh, but there were many people in, the, in the, the North, especially, that did not agree with that. Uh, so I think we're in another moment where we do have competing legal regimes. And so I, I think that for, for those of us who uh, think that there may be people in states who don't agree with what their legislatures have done um, in terms of criminalizing abortion, that they should know that if they are called to be on a jury uh, and they're deciding whether to punish someone who has assisted a woman w- with an abortion, they could think about nullification. And th- this idea that even though the law in the book says you're not allowed to do it, do they want to punish this person for it? that act. And, um, and I think that to, to, for this, um, nullification idea to, to kind of take hold, we need to have more open conversations about, about why we have nullification and then how it could be misused. And because I think the, with, with a not guilty verdict, like there, you know, so, someone is harmed by that uh, potentially, and jurors need to think about that. And then they also need to think about if they had a guilty verdict, what, you know, what would that mean and what would that say? So I think this is a, a really important time for different social movements, including those in support of, of, of reproductive right, um, to think about cases where abortion is criminalized and what jurors might do in, that, in, in those cases. So as we, as we wrap up here, uh, you and I were, were chatting before we started recording about our mutual colleague, John Gastel, here at Penn State, who studies ways that juries are used outside of the criminal justice system to make decisions about other things in, in our public lives. And so I wonder how you think about that. Like, can some of the, you know, citizen juries about, I don't know, budgeting or big community level decisions, the things that that John and others study, does that tie back at all to jury applications, you know, specifically within the legal system that, that you study? Yeah, I get asked this question a lot. Like another version is like, how can we scale up, you know, the the, the benefits of, of jury decisions that that I write about? And I think there's two aspects that that uh, can be transferred to other uh, other domains that are really important for to to have the kind of outcomes and and experience the uh, juries that I would like to see. Um, the first is to have time for let's say citizens in a citizens panel or uh, to to really understand the issue. Like I think the immersive quality of being in a trial is very important for the um, kind of cognitive work of being a juror. Um, and you know and even the fact that you have to like you have to like not be on your phone, you know, during that time, right? That you have to fully focus uh, your attention attention on this. And you also get a lot of information, you know, so I think, you know, tra- you know allowing citizens to go through something like that, you know, bringing potentially a multi-day, you know, a workshop or you know, a, a space where they can really be immersed in a topic and hear about
about it from different uh, perspectives and um, and ask questions, I think um, is, is a, a key part of uh, the decision making process, as opposed to something like a survey or voting or you know things like that. I think something that's much more intense and deliberative on the front end is important. And and I think the other key thing about what we can learn from uh, juries and legal system is that for them to be important both for society and for the people that are on them is that they have to have final decision-making power. Like they can't just be an advisory committee to someone else because that is frustrating for the people that go through it. And and, and when you don't have final decision-making power, that intense experience that you've had, you know, almost feels like an insult. It's like, why did you make me sit here for the for this time if you're not going to take the advice that we, you know, deliberated on? We came, you know, I'm sure you're sure there were probably you know heated debates, you know, um, to get to what the recommendation was. And if you don't take it uh, seriously, uh, you know, the whole thing, I think. It loses so much power um, if it's just a, a, you know, a, a, um, an advisory board. Um, but I think like in some places, participatory budgeting you know, does give uh, lay people a final decision-making power, right? You have this amount of money, you guys decide how, how to spend it and we will respect that. And, uh, and I understand when people have like reactions against that, like, oh no, like what if they spend it in a bad way? But like we have reactions to that with, in so many other places too, with, with elected officials, with experts, right? Um, and I think we just need to spread out the, this discretionary power such that we might have bad decisions from a citizen's board, but that's okay. Like the next year, you'll have a different time, you know, an opportunity to make a decision. And um, and so uh, I, I think that to, to bring the advantages of juries outside of the, the courtroom it, it means to give ordinary people final decision-making power. Right. We will leave things there. Sonali Chakravarti, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. So a lot of really interesting and provocative stuff there. I just I just want to start anyway with this, the argument that juries are not representative. And, and she makes a lot of points about that. And you know, in terms of uh, not having, you know, it's not effectively constitutional insofar as it's often not a jury of one's peers. And, uh, you know, especially when you're talking about uh, people of color. And I mean, I guess I would argue, and, I, and I'd be interested to hear what you say about this, Candace, but I would argue that there's nothing in the Constitution that says there needs to be any any reason why someone is or is not selected into a jury pool. And so it doesn't have to be driver's license. It doesn't have to be voter rolls. My argument would be that um, voter rolls is not a bad way to select jurors because people who are registered to vote have already demonstrated that they have a an engagement with the with their uh, their society with their democracy and take their responsibilities seriously and that's the kind of person that we want in the jury pool. So I mean I you know if there's a problem there then I'm not I I would just argue that the place to to address it is not in the jury pool. It's the the place to address it is voter registration. I think that we're making. I think that there are a series of assumptions being made here that people who are registered to vote are already kind of demonstrating 
some sort of, uh, you know, civic responsibility or recognition that they need to be involved. But a couple of things. One, we know that people who are younger, more transient, you know, are not going to be registered to vote because you have to register to vote every single time you move. Mm-hmm. Two, that is a suggestion that people who don't vote might not, who might be doing that as their own political stance. And we can have a whole argument around whether that's a good thing to do or not a good thing to do, but that people are in recognition, are recognizing, are cognizant of the choices that they have and they don't want to engage. The third thing that comes to mind is a talk that I went to Kimberly Latrice Williams, who wrote a book called How We Can Win. She's also a, a YA writer, but she was a part of the team in the Ahmad Arbery case. And by team, I mean, there were a lot of people involved in getting that case to national attention, to ensuring that the prosecutor was not a person who had ties to the, the murderers, so on and so forth. And one of the steps that she mentioned was that there was a get out the vote drive, but not for people to vote but for people to get in the juror pool. Hmm. And so people didn't vote because they were in a solidly red space. Why would they? They were never going to get what they wanted because we have districting that allows representatives to select their voters. So why would you register to vote if you know that you're never going to have an opportunity to select a representative of your choice? So I'm really glad that Sonali brought up these kind of different possibilities around residency, around taxes. I mean, if you pay your taxes, are you not also a responsible citizen? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those are the, the, the things that come to mind about the, the shortcomings of using voter rolls and connecting voter rolls to, to jury selection. The other thing is that we also know that when you do that, you also have already said, if you cannot vote, you cannot be on a jury. And maybe people want to have different (laughs) selection criteria of like, okay, well, maybe you can't vote, but maybe you can be on a jury, for example. So so yeah, I I just think it's more complicated than that. I think it is also worth talking about you know, you were ta- you said at one point that we're talking about the health of our. This all reflects on the health of our democracy, and and my thought was, yeah, it really reflects on the health of our law, which is not completely the same, but obviously, you know, overlaps significantly. But you know, when we are in a society where so few cases go to jury, it is. You know, it is almost like, yeah, you have this power, but you're probably not going to use it. And if you have these these First Amendment or these uh, Bill of Rights, the Sixth and Seventh Amendment, right to a jury trial, but, you know, this tiny percentage of people are actually going to have the opportunity to exercise that right, that is a problem. And And to talk about how the jury fits into that is is almost like talking about a tiny sliver when there's this big uh, looming issue that that is going unaddressed. Oh, yeah, totally. So I think that 
what you're saying is that the fact that people do not go to trial is a symptom of a larger problem. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, what you're pointing to is the health of our criminal legal system. Mm -hmm. People do not go to trial 95% of all, you know, uh, like people would rather plead out um, in part because they know the game at hand. They know that there is a person who come hell or high water needs a guilty verdict Mm -hmm. because, and this goes back to our previous conversation, that is linked to their electoral well-being. And so, you know, if you are a prosecutor who is motivated by being reelected by a very specific group of people, you're going to want to come down hard on all sorts of things just so you can say that you won and that you were tough on crime, et cetera, et cetera. But also, at some point, we have to question whether or not this is this is legitimate in terms of a democracy mm-hmm. and, and also in terms of, you know, the objective of justice, right? Mm-hmm. But that raises another issue I wanted to mention, which is her, which is her a big question, her big push for the the right of the jury to to at least reserve the right to um, nullification when the jury feels like it the the law that is being applied is unjust she wants to leave open I think it's fair to say she wants to leave open the possibility for the jurors to use their experience as, you know, someone who lives in these communities and who sees the police in action, et cetera, uh, to just uh, decide the case in terms of justice and not in terms of law. And I, I went to the book. I don't know how much of this, I mean, I might've missed it, but I, my first thought was, the place where there was the most jury nullification was in Jim Crow South, mm-hmm. where uh, people were guilty of, you know, crimes against African-Americans. And they got off because they had an all white jury and didn't matter what the law was. Mm-hmm. And, and so the idea that we're going to advance this opportunity particularly in a world, in in a society right now that is so polarized and where the rule of law is threatened to a degree that it has not been in a while. I I don't think that's a good idea. I just, I I think I would much rather have, you know, Tocqueville's idea that, you know, what juries are being schooled in is uh, the the importance of the rule of law and the importance of a, a, a striving for an objective application of the law, justice is blind, all that. I, I feel like that is what we should be looking for in juries, especially at this moment. So Sonali is not innovating here. She is just saying that this possibility exists And it always has existed. And we should probably know that this is a thing that a jury can do. I, there are several cases of which jury, jurors did not know fully what their choices were. 
And they gave bad choices because they thought that they had to choose within a particular set of constraints. And turns out that the, just the instruction was not clear or wrong, and they end up doing something wrong. So, and and things that they wish they could have done, they wish they could have done differently if they knew that they had a, a different choice, right? Okay, why am I saying this? I'm saying this because what I think that. Sonali is pointing to is that there are points in time, moments in history, laws on the books that are unjust. And nobody can really, I mean, not nobody, because there are plenty of people who think that the way that the world works is just fine. That there is actually another possibility that maybe jurors, people, Americans might feel more empowered if they knew that there actually was a different possibility, another choice. Now, whether they actually lean into that, that's a totally different thing. But to know that, you know what, what if I walked in here and I found that it just was like really bad that, you know, I ha- I know I maybe there's a possibility of a of a different outcome. But I mean most people as we see stay within the bounds. So I my sense is that what she's really calling for is a broader knowledge base uh for Americans to know what is possible of being a juror. The other thing I think that comes to mind and she says this herself is that there is a split between morality and legality. There are a lot of things that are perfectly legal that are wrong. Sure. That's how we have so many police problems, for example. And um, the case that she cares about right now is abortion Mm -hmm. and prosecuting people who help others to get what is otherwise a safe procedure and in some cases safer to do that than to continue on with the pregnancy. So, you know, my sense is I hear you. I hear where you're coming from, that the rule of law is being threatened, that there's so much polarization that what if people did lean into this more than like we would just be willy nilly all over the place. But we also have to consider that this is that that these things have to happen in a group. Right. The examples that she gives are the jury as a body was, you know, decided, no, we're not doing this. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that one person went willy nilly and decided to disrupt the entire process. I, I, um, I think the fact that, that we've had this kind of conversation just speaks to the importance of this book and speaks to the fact that she is absolutely right that we have neglected the idea of the jury as a manifestation of enfranchisement and empowerment among the citizenry. And we, people who care about democracy, need to think about this in terms of how we, how we practice uh, law and how, we, how, our justice situ- how our justice system operates. So uh, kudos to her. So for Democracy Works, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Candace Watts-Smith. Thanks for listening.
Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Public Media. Our editors are Michael Klein, Chris Kugler, Mark Stitzer, and Clint Yoder. Editorial review by Emily Reddy. Additional production support from Andy Grant and Christine Allen. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Democracy Works is a member of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about our podcast collective devoted to democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.